How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. What has an ecosystem done for you lately? How do you know? What was it worth? Nature provides many daily benefits to humans, including clean water and plant pollination. Yet many people in industrialized countries barely think about the value of those processes. The world's growing economy and population are putting stresses on natural resources to the point that even large corporations are concerned about the sustainability of ecosystem services. Over the next hour, we'll explore what ecosystem services are and why people should care about them. Joining us with our live audience in San Francisco, we have two experts. Jib Ellison is founder and CEO of Blue Sky, a consulting firm that advises some of the world's largest companies. And Peter Seligman is co-founder and CEO of Conservation International, which helps protect biodiversity for the well-being of humanity. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you for coming. Uh, Peter Seligman, what is an ecosystem service? Nature gives us gifts, services, benefits. And uh, a, uh, so an ecosystem service is basically what you get from the natural world. And uh, there are different kinds of services that nature gives us. Uh, one is provisioning, food, for example, uh, wild food, whether it's fish or uh, uh, whether it's fruits. Uh, another could be um, fresh water, what we drink. Another provisioning service uh, are the medicines that we use. So that's one type of service that nature gives us. Um, nature also gives us uh, uh, kind of regulating services. For example, uh, ecosystems regulate our climate. Um, uh, ecosystems uh, uh, protect uh, um, our, uh, our, our shores. They regulate the health of our, of our coastlines. Uh, uh, then there are uh, supporting services. Um, and the supporting service would be like, uh, oh, I guess a, a good example of a supporting service is the nutrient cycle. I mean, nature provides the soil and the mm-hmm. nutrient cycle. That's a supporting service. And the last of the, the services is cultural. It's uh, Nature gives us... Um, uh, the places that we we live that gives it shapes our belief systems uh, it allows us to have certain types of livelihoods so all those services which are essential for people are provided by nature um, we've lost track of the relationship that we have with nature and ecosystem services because we don't think about our food as coming from kind of a forest or a farm it comes from a supermarket uh, so there's a real disconnect now um, and so uh, what, what we really need to understand is that, and this is really where the conversation about conservation has gone, why it's gone to talk about ecosystem services, is that um, many, many people think of nature as kind of a marginal thing, that it's nice for the wealthy. Well, in fact, nature is the foundation, the treasury for the poor. It's the treasury for everybody. It's what we need to live. It's not a marginal kind of luxury item, its core. And humanity needs nature to thrive. And that's why what we're trying to get the world to understand is that nature gives us, or ecosystems give us, essential services. Jim Ellison, do corporations also need those ecosystems to thrive? Why do they care about ecosystem services? Well, if you think about all the goods and services that you can buy in a store, um, all of it ultimately is coming from somewhere down the line out of nature. So it's either coming from the ground, being extracted through minerals and oil, or you know it's coming from the forests or it's coming from um, agricultural lands. And the, the, the companies, the big companies in the world with visionary leaders are realizing 
that as they look out 5, 10, 15, 20 years and they see the rise of population growth, the continued economic activity in this current paradigm of doing things, that it, the security of supply for, to serve their customers is, is at risk. Because when you undermine these services, which are estimated, some people estimate to be in the 44 to 50 trillion dollar annually, if you were to create a machine to build it, um, that those are becoming diminished, then you can start to see that there's a big problem as you're, you know, creating your pro forma for the next five years. So uh, you're saying a corporate executive looks at a butterfly and thinks, well, that somehow my destiny is connected to that butterfly, that that butterfly goes extinct, that in some real sense, not just a, a theoretical sense, that that has an impact on the company? Well, I, I would say, you know, uh, as, as my friend Peter here likes to say, you know, imagine you have a situation where you have an airplane and you have rivets holding on the wings and you pull out one rivet, that's fine plane flies, two, three, four, five, but there will come a time when you take the last rivet and the wing comes off. And we've seen that that's, you know, ecosystem collapse, which is, uh, there's many examples in, in smaller cases that uh, we don't want to have on a global scale. So business leaders understand markets and prices. Where are there some, where are some prices or markets that are evolving around these kinds of services? Peter, whether it's clean water or are there some examples where uh, markets are evolving where people can say, oh, it, something has more value alive than being cut down or, or uh, developed? Yeah. I mean, all over the world. I mean, it's what's really, what's really exciting is that this recognition that, that that the stresses of population and consumption are undermining the foundation of, of healthy societies. It's not confined to a conversation here. This is a global conversation that's taking place in many, many countries. So uh, probably the first really um, um, shining demonstration of a market from ecosystem services that's been kind of understood now uh, is what took place in Costa Rica uh, in the last uh, maybe seven or eight years ago uh, when the Minister of Natural Resources was trying to figure out how he was going to ex- you know, protect his forest from poaching and how do you get the locals, the neighbors of these parks, to actually not cut trees but plant trees. And he had a brainstorm, which was, let's talk about these forests as water factories instead of parks. And he went to the Minister of Finance and said, you know, we've got a whole portfolio of factories producing water. Uh, we need to get some funds from the World Bank to help kind of finance that, and we can pay you back. And, uh, and so uh, what happened in Costa Rica is they created a market where the water that comes out of the forest goes downstream, and the beneficiaries downstream pay a small fee for the public good that comes from the, the forest, and that goes back to the farmers who get money from planting trees as opposed to cutting down their forests. Great idea, and it worked. Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro have adopted the same policy. They're doing the exact same thing to protect their watersheds. And in fact, uh, the, uh, the, the planning ministry in China uh, uh, brought a group, we brought a group of, 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 of congressional leaders from China to Costa Rica and to Brazil to see how this worked because in, in Shanghai they're paying billions of dollars a year to clean up the water for the Yangtze, and it's a recurring cost. And what they realize is actually they can compensate upstream landowners, farmers, to do it differently. And so it's a very simple. There's a service, it's water. It's produced by a healthy ecosystem. Let's invest in helping that ecosystem survive. And that's a really powerful example, and it's really it's happening all over the world. And isn't it happening or didn't it happen in New York City as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great example in this this. Uh, country in which in 2006 the EPA said you're going to have to build a filtration plant. The estimates were in the many, you know, six to eight billion dollars if you could find the place and nobody wanted a massive filtration plant near their house or their neighborhood. And so uh, somebody, and I don't know exactly who, or somebody's figured out exactly this, that what's the problem, what's the upstream problem is the quality of the water, and what determines the quality of the water is the watershed, the Delaware Catskill, primarily the Delaware Catskill watershed. And they went 
and uh, basically did a calculation and realized if we invest in, in a sense, paying the upstream land owners to uh, uh, reduce the runoff that is going into the lakes and the rivers such that the, 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 the watershed remains healthy, we do not have to do this this filtration plant. So it was a bit of a risky venture in the sense of you don't know exactly if it's going to work. It's much easier to build a big, you know, capital plant and whatnot. Which creates jobs, which everyone wants these days. Right. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, but it's been it's been very successful. Actually, in anticipation for coming here, I looked it up on the website. It's still it's still a shining example and working very very well today. Do these mechanisms require government funding, or do they require? Do they increase consumer prices? Is there a financial hit somewhere? I don't know of a financial hit. What it does require is, uh, in in some cases, what it requires is eliminating of subsidies that are supporting other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the market is really uneven, and there are many subsidies that that undermine the value of, of ecosystems and the services. So, a regulatory framework is really helpful. I mean, clearly, what we were all hoping for was a regulatory framework on carbon that would come out of the the UN process. We didn't get it. Um, the U.S. policies or lack of policies just sabotage that. Um, but uh, so we don't really have a global market, for example, for carbon. But there are local markets for carbon, and and uh, there are reduced markets for carbon. So regulatory frameworks are usually helpful. It also sometimes takes an initial capital investment to stimulate the market, to provide training. A lot of this actually is education. It's capacity building. It's recognizing that there is some kind of a value, and then it's designing a, a market framework, and that takes government. Teaching but, farmers to do things differently, which yeah. gets the culture, which was one yeah. of the three ecosystem services you well, mentioned. I, I was just going to say, I, I actually think if we wait for governments to kind of figure it out, um, we're going to be waiting a long, long time for the global deal on just about anything. And that today there are shining examples of using, in a sense, a lens, a a way of thinking about sustainability as reducing the the externalized costs into the environment and into society to drive innovation throughout value chains that actually lowers the real cost today, but does so in a way while taking down the overall cost to, to society. And an example was just recently in, in uh, Blue Sky does these, these field trips with our, with our executives from time to time. And we were just in Africa on one of these, and we met with an elephant biologist, Dale Lewis, who was trying to stop uh, poaching. And uh, for years, he'd been trying to stop elephant poaching in this, in this park unsuccessfully. Then he got shot at, went to visit his, the poachers in, in jail, to confront his his enemy, if you will, and realize that these were starving peasants who lived on the the side of this this big park, and that they were never going to stop. In other words, if they were starving to death and their families were starving to death, they were going to continue to poach. So he tried. He made a whole new approach. Went taught them how to farm, gave them food security, guaranteed a market for all their excess, created a processing plant locally and ended up now selling this two-pound bag of rice called It's Wild, branded it in Lusaka, in the capital of Zambia, um, for a lower price than all the other rice on the shelf. And he's making money. And now in five years, he's got 50,000 families, which equates to probably a quarter of a million people benefit through this deal. And elephant populations going back up. So markets are the solution, but it requires some bold, courageous leadership to engage markets. Mm -hmm. And, Peter, you seem to be saying there needs to be a regulatory framework for markets in which to operate that address... No, no, I completely agree with with Jib that that we were kind of searching for a global framework. And what we learned is you don't get global agreements. Regionalized frameworks, then. But it doesn't mean that you... But a market does need to have some kind of a regionalized or some framework within it. But, Mm -hmm. But it's the entrepreneurial spirit... And it's basically all it is, I mean, we call it, I, I think it is entrepreneurial spirit, but it's enlightened self-interest. People do things if it helps their lives. And we got a lot of people that actually need to improve their lives. And so, uh, you know, if you can find a way to create a, sell a product and protect ecosystems so that it also benefits your life, you do that. And what's happening is that there's just, 
kind of a, a, a explosion of really great creative new ideas. I mean, this is one uh, the 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 the, the uh, engagement in, in Africa with the elephants is really brilliant. Uh, there's another really fascinating one in the uh, in the the grasslands and forests of Sichuan in uh, in western China, where communities are now saying, okay, we know that that we need more money to live, and you've got a company. In this case, it's Marriott, but it's a whole group of companies that are trying to figure out how they can voluntarily offset their emissions. And they're thinking, well, we'd like to do that in China, so uh, how do we do it? We put them together with communities and farmers, and so the farmers have agreed, don't cut down their forests, and that reduces emissions, number one. We need a livelihood, so in ex- we're also going to grow organic honey, and part of the deal is that Marriott's buying everything they grow, and their livelihoods are going up by 70%. So, but we're seeing this all over the world. This is, this is an explosive moment in history. And, and what's driving this? Is it opportunity, some sense of moral obligation, or hmm, shareholders are watching, there's going to be a price on carbon, we better get out in front of it? Uh, enli- I mean, enlightened self-interest sounds good, but, but, but that's hard to translate day-to-day for a corporate manager. What's really driving this? I think it's, it's, there's a whole, you know, a corporation has a couple of audiences they really need to please. You know, they need to please their shareholders. That means money. They need to please their employees, get them engaged. They need to please their customers, right? Um, and uh, they're in a global kind of competitive business. So what you see often are companies try to figure out what's the kind of win-win right approach. And so what we are seeing uh, is a series of motivations. So Marriott really cares. They think their customers care where their water comes from, and they're buying some honey and helping some farmers. They think they, I mean, they want a clean bed and a hot shower, right? So, And they're competing with a lot of other companies, and they want to stand out against those companies. So, so it's, it's, it's a very, so it's very competitive. Now, the other thing that's really important is that uh, there are some companies uh, like the work that that both of us have been deeply involved with with Walmart, um, where they're really interested in their supply chain, or uh, there are other companies that sell fish. They're wondering where are we going to get our fish from, and the reality is that when you have 6.9 billion people on Earth, and in four decades we're going to have 33 percent more. We're going to be at 9.2 billion. We're going to have two billion more that are actually uh, striving hard to get into the middle class. We're going to double, double our demand for energy, food, and water in four decades. I mean, that is really exciting, and that is really challenging. And we're trying to do it on a planet where extinction rates are 500 times normal, and fisheries globally are collapsing, and we've changed the climate. We have to figure out kind of a new development model. What's really interesting is a lot of people that run corporations have families, and they share that concern. I mean, so it's it's looking for solutions, and that's why we're in this fascinating moment where where there's more creativity and engagement. Every uh, Jim, can you think of any good company that does not have a focus on environment and sustainability now? Mm. No, I think, I and think, they didn't have it ten no. years ago. Well, and 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 a couple things. So first of all. In order for things to stay the same, and given all of this, everything's going to change. It will change. It has to change. So there's an inevitability that goes beyond what politics and all of that. The second point is, to, to, to Peter's point, people have realized that uh, in, a, in, a way, in a time of radical transparency, which is here now for the first time in history, and is likely to extend as, as our children and use these devices and grow older and are used to information. Price transparency is already here. It's just one step removed to wanting to know where my T-shirt was made or where, where that lavalier mic, what factory it was made in, what's the practices of that organization. And, and this is already, there's, there's organizations like Good Guide and, and whatnot that are already pressing into this. And there's a, a number of of initiatives of which uh, Blue Sky and, and CI are involved with to create a sustainability index. Mm-hmm. And there's an example today in the, in the apparel industry representing, you know, 40 companies from 35, representing 35% of all apparel 
sold in the United States to create a, a apples for apples index that would measure from all the way back to the cotton farm all the way through the end of life. And as soon as, you know, corporate leaders start to see that these initiatives are in place, you want to win. It creates a race to the top as opposed to a race to the bottom. And, and so I think you've got that. The, 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 the first time in history that we actually price things accurately? No. You know, we actually have today, for the first time in history, to know whatever you paid for that shirt, let's just say it was $50. We could figure out the true cost. We could say that actually, if you add in all the costs that were externalized, social China, and environmental costs, social environmental costs, cost. it's an actually a $150 shirt. And, and then we could look at my shirt for $50, which is made in a different factory with different cotton in different ways, and actually say, you know what, this was $50, but it actually true costs to the planet. It's only $25. Jim Bellison is CEO of Blue Sky Consultants. We're also discussing ecosystem services with Peter Seligman, who's CEO and co-founder of Conservation International. Uh, so, so let's take that, 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 that trans, transparency. There's a presumption that consumers really care about that information. And uh, there might be a niche of the consumers. Mm-hmm. And the other point is that, uh, as you point out well, that corporations are externalizing machines. They're very good at externalizing the costs and internalizing profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you think that transparency alone is going to try to compel them to internalize more of their costs? Well, well so I think what will actually compel um, a lot of corporations is, is their shareholders. And increasingly, you know, the, the one in eight dollars today is in what's called a SRI. Socially responsible investment. Pay some addition exactly. to social return as well as financial return. Exactly. Now, what historically has been the case is those are negatively screened investments, meaning if you're in firearms and tobacco, I'm not going to no invest sin in No SIN stocks. Right. No SIN. Okay. What's changing is the, the sophisticated fund managers, the people who are, who are thinking through this lens, if you will, are looking for leading indicators of future performance as opposed to trying to opt out of things. And this is changing the questions that they're asking of corporations in, in a quite profound way. And there is, you know, there is some evidence to suggest that it's actually working. In other words, you know, there are some funds that have applied these screens for 20 years that are, you know, relative to their in a risk-adjusted basis, they're making more money. But the returns in the system is so short-term focused. Quarterly returns, CEOs are in there for two or three years, if they're lucky, maybe a little longer before they get tossed out. The pressures are so short-term, mm-hmm. and some of these things are long-term and external. The pressures are intense to, to make this quarter's numbers. But you can. See, this is, this is the myth. Yeah. A lot of what can be done today, I mean, Walmart, he mentioned Walmart. So... Walmart is not occupied, the people running that company, I would not call them, you know, dyed-in-the-wool environmentalists. Like, probably is in this audience. However, if you Shocking. look under, if you look under the, now, they would, they would be the first to say they're not a green company. In fact, they have said that publicly. Um, that said, if you look under the hood at some of the initiatives that they are driving, and the scale at which they're driving it and, and the, the transformations that are taking place, I think everybody here would be amazed. And, and, and why are they doing that? Because it's all about reducing waste. And energy is a proxy for waste. Energy, right? carbon's a proxy for energy. Well, they're also saying, they're also careful not to say they're a green company because being a green company excludes about 95% of the public that, how the public defines himself. Mm. And so um, it's, it doesn't help them to claim to be a green company. It helps them to reduce waste. Mm. It helps them to, to increase cost. energy efficiency. It helps them to secure their supply chain so there's predictability in the supply chain. Mm. And, and the, the myth that's being busted is that you can get that, that, that a product that, that pollutes is cheaper. Mm-hmm. That's not the truth, because there is a cost. Now, the cost often is hidden or pushed downstream. Pushed on someone else. Pushed on to somebody else. It's your health bill that goes up, 
or you got to pay more for your water to get it clean or whatever it may be. And that's where the transparency comes in. Right. The transparency is, and this is what I say when I talk to, to executives in controversial industries like, like the mining industry. I say, there is no place for you to hide. I mean, you actually can continue to do what you've done. You can have a negative effect on communities. You can have a negative effect on watersheds. And that's your choice. But you cannot hide anymore. What you do will be known tomorrow, or maybe even today, it will be all over the world. And that doesn't help you with your shareholders. It doesn't help you with your customers. It doesn't build enthusiasm in your employees. And often it will get you shut down for regulatory reasons. So you can make a choice of how you want to operate. And and their response is, okay, we want to do it the right way. We don't really know how to do it the right way. So what do we do? And so the engagement that we're all involved with right now is... How do you do it in the right way? And what's really interesting is that the environmental community, which has been really good at saying no, has not been as good in designing strategies that actually are economically viable. And so the exciting thing about engaging business and why it makes so much sense to engage business is because all of a sudden you're looking at the practicality of how do I get a product manufactured and to the market and make it green and do it in a way that, in essence, is available at the right cost. And so we're in the – and that's the innovation that's taking place right now. I mean, if you look at the changes in in the way that products are bottled or shipped or stored or shelved, they're, revolution, they're being revolutionized right now. And so, we're you know, this is actually driven by a recognition that – there's a market for this product, and that it's absolutely essential for the long-term well-being of those companies. Right. And, and that's that, what's going on. It's it's no longer a marginalized CSR activity. Uh, CSR being corporate social, social responsibility. responsibility. Peter Seligman is co-founder uh, and CEO of Conservation International. Our other guest today at Climate One is Jib Ellison, CEO of Blue Sky Consultants. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you mentioned... Con- products being bottled. One of the companies that Conservation International works with is is Fiji Water, which takes water out of a little island in the Pacific, puts it on fossil fuel powered trucks and uh, ships and then trucks and then and then comes to the, to the United States or Europe. And they've done some good things restoring ecosystems in some places, but their core product is taking water and shipping it halfway around the world in plastic bottles. Is that core business sustainable? Or, and are they just doing some greenwashing by kind of saying, well, we kind of look at this nice garden over here that we've helped preserve. Uh, but their core product is... I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really, it's, it's, because it's actually, it's a great question, and it's a, uh, it, the answer kind of looks at the complexity of, of, of the situation. If we had clean water and ample amounts of it all over the world, we wouldn't need bottled water, for sure. If you go to many parts of the world, and I don't want to just focus right on Fiji yet. I will answer the question about Fiji water. But if you go to many, many parts of the world, you don't have clean water. The only water that's available is water that's brought in somehow from somewhere to drink. And so there is a real challenge in that there's, there are billions of people on Earth do not have access to clean water. The most common cause of death in children is infant diarrhea caused by polluted water. So, so number one, we had a real issue which should focus on cleaning water, and I think that that's kind of essential. The, the next question is, how about kind of this market that will allow a bottled water to be as expensive as Fiji water, more expensive than, than, than gasoline, and... and hundred times cheaper than local... How does that work? How yeah. does that work? Um, so, um, there is... I mean, I think Fiji water places faces a huge challenge, and the challenge is that transport of their product. And that's the downside. The downside is they're spending money, burning fossil fuels, emitting CO2, moving water across the Pacific. Um, The upside for what Fiji Water does is this. The largest forest in the Pacific is on Fiji. And the only reason it's standing is because Fiji Water 
has not a product that's produced by that forest that they can sell. So they have created a fund that actually permanently finances, supports all the communities that live in those forest areas. It's called the SOVI Basin, S-O-V-I. So it's their action that has resulted in the protection of the largest forest in the Pacific Islands, number one, a revenue source for all the communities, number two, and the creation of jobs, the largest employer on the island of Fiji. So when you look at it that way, what you understand is that it's not as simple as good guys versus bad guys. Um, and so what we have done with Fiji Water was not a greenwashing engagement. It was basically saying, okay, you were there. How do we do – what are we going to be able to do to actually benefit the environment? The burning of forests and clearing of forests in terms of CO2 emissions is – 18%, 15 to 18% of all CO2 emissions, more than every car, truck, plane, ship in the world combined in terms of CO2 emissions. And so what we're trying to figure out is how do we stop deforestation? So the engagement with Fiji Water started out looking at that. We want to stop the destruction of the forest because the only option was the destruction of that forest. And that's how that engagement began. That's a CO2 benefit. But... You know, I, I, I totally take your point. What we're trying to do is figure out if they're there, how do we get them to do the right thing and at the same time protect biodiversity, preserve forests? Have either of you ever sort of uh, fired customers or, or clients or partners because you didn't think that they were really going the full mile in terms of sustainability efforts? They're just going through the motions that you couldn't get them. I understand that there's corporations are like a country and there's lots of different power centers and motivations and you mm-hmm. try to lead them along. But you ever get to the point where it's like, they're just not getting it, they're not in this, they're just going through the motions? We don't believe we should be affiliated with that? Well, well, in our case, first of all, if they weren't serious, they wouldn't hire us. Because we're, you know, we tend to work with... Because you cost a lot. We cost a lot. <laughs> we're the best, in my opinion. And we really work with the Olympic, I would say the Olympic athletes of, of, of the leadership, meaning the people who are already at a, at a good level and they want to take it to, you know, a very much higher level. So we have had some engagements with people that, you know, it doesn't last very long because we're, we're pushing the envelope so far so fast that they just have no interest in it because they thought maybe they were signing up for something easier. Something I easier want to do a 10K, not an Ironman. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's – I'm thinking about companies, specific companies, and there's some companies that it became very clear that they were not interested in a serious engagement, and so we don't engage them. We have a really, you know, careful, thorough process of trying to figure out who we're going to work with. And we look for institutions that we believe are global agents of change. And we go out and search for organizations that we think, is this organization that's in – and we, we went after Walmart to get Walmart engaged in this because of the leverage of a company being able to have a positive impact if they change. We got a lot of grief, a lot of grief for going to Walmart. Dealing with the devil, sure. And the, the, the question that, that – A lot of people <laughs> – well, I mean, we got a lot of grief because some people thought that that was the case. What what I've always felt is that if the environmental community focuses on the 15% of the world that are true, ardent environmentalists, we're losing, losing, losing. We've got to make the tent big enough for everybody. We've got to bring them in. And over time, that creates trust. And we need to figure out which institutions have to change if we're going to succeed. Because this, this game that we're involved with, it's not about – really, we are involved in – I don't look at it as conservation. We are involved in making development smart and sustainable. And that means we got to change the way development works. That means we've got to change business. And to change business, you need to change some of the individuals. And there's an interesting story about how you got to Walmart through Wal- Rob Walton. Let's talk about that a little bit. And I want to get in a little bit experiential aspect of, of how corporate leaders kind of have an epiphany or get on board. But let's talk about Rob Walton, how he got into this. Um, the, the Rob Walton story is really fascinating in that the first contact that Rob Walton had with Conservation International um, is a kind of a reflection of who Rob Walton is and uh, and kind of the, 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 the culture of Walmart. He was sitting on a bus going from, this is the guy that is 
you know, owns a lot of Walmart. And sitting on a bus going from Narita Airport into into Tokyo. His limo broke down or what? He, you know, he, he drives a Prius. He sits in the bus. He, you know, this is just the way he is. He shares a room when he goes, you know, when they travel. But this is like the culture. So he's sitting on a bus, sitting next to a guy who works for me named Michael Totten. He didn't know Michael Totten. But Michael was working on a PowerPoint to try to figure out how does Tokyo Electric Power do a better job in terms of energy efficiency. And Rob watched it. And at the end, he said, that was really interesting, you know. A looking over shoulder. And so there's a moral here. Just te- talk to the person next to you. You never know who it might be. Totally yeah. true. Totally true. Totally true. And at the end, he said, this is really fascinating. You know, thanks for showing me that PowerPoint. Here's my card. You know, let me know what you're doing. And, you know, the next day, Michael Totten, who's a little spacey, looked at the card and saw that it was Rob Walton, chairman of Walmart. And he contacted me. I'd, Rob had heard also about CI from somebody else, who was at that time the president of the World Bank, Jim Wolfenson. And so I invited Rob to come over to CI, came over to CI. He looked, he spent three days with us looking at our planning meetings, talking about what we were doing. And then we started traveling around the world together, going on diving trips and really kind of exploring different things. And I kept saying to him, you got a lot of influence. When we go in to see a head of state, like the president of Costa Rica, I'm going to say to him, you got to change the way you manage your reserves and you protect your ocean. And he's going to say, uh, in his mind, environmentalist. Rob, you need to say something because he'll think he's my capitalist. And so Rob would say, you know what, I'm looking for a sustained source of fish. But we saw all these boats filled with shark fin. You know, can you guys figure out a different way here on how to – and they'll pay attention. And Rob began to learn that he had that, that influence through Walmart. We were coming back from a diving trip in Costa Rica, sitting in a calm ocean, surrounded by spinner dolphins and whales. It was beautiful. And I said to him, Rob, no matter what you do personally, if you want to change the world, you got to change Walmart. Can't just do it with philanthropy. You can't do it with philanthropy. You got to change the supply chain. You got to use the power of your business. You got 70, at that time, 70,000, maybe you got 100,000 suppliers. 70,000 suppliers, they should all be going to this. And he said, well, I'll introduce you to Lee Scott and we can have the conversation. It took about a couple of years to get to that place. We went down to Bentonville. I invited Jib to go with me because I knew Jib, really trusted Jib, and I knew that the engagement with Walmart was going to be complicated and it was going to be much more complex in terms of developing systems and processes than we knew how to do it at Conservation International. And we began a conversation, and the conversation began with a pound of salmon and saying, this salmon is cheaper than anybody else's salmon, the pink is a dye. It's farmed off the coast of Chile. The coast of Chile is a wasteland now. And he said, I've had my first granddaughter. We don't want to do that. What do we do? And that began this process where we talked about extinction, endangered species. We talked about the, you know, the rivet story about, you know, like, and, and that began a really long journey that, uh, that we all began together. Rob Walton became the chairman of our, our uh, Center for Environmental Leadership and Business and began to reach out to many others. Um, uh, Jib started working really closely with, with Lee Scott. We told Lee, if you're going to make this work, you got to own CEO it. Former CEO of Walmart. We said to Lee, you got to own it. It's got to be you doing it. It cannot be delegated down the line. And uh, it was that moment, and it was the right person. Everything worked out, and... and uh, um, you know, it, then we took a group of CEOs, you know, to conservation organizations down to Bentonville. A lot of them would not go to see Walmart. And others said, we'll go, but it's got to be anonymous. And uh, I went down there saying, you guys got to be kidding me. If you can change this group, this is this is like a big deal. Let's work on it. And Jib then got in, and his he and his team from Blue Sky did a masterful job in helping Walmart figure out what's the path that they have to follow and that's, it's now all over. I mean, I just came back from a, a, a business and sustainability council meeting in China uh, with, with 35 different businesses, big, separate, huge businesses, all looking at sustainability. All this kind of goes back to that meeting in Bentonville, and, and that's what's happening around the world. Peter Seligman is co-founder and CEO of Conservation International. Jim Ellison, uh, the Walmart story has been well told. There's a book. Ed Humes has been here. I think it's Force of Nature that, that tells that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested in, in, in a, a CEO epiphany or where you take someone out and they have an experience and they go, ah, I get it. Mm-hmm. And they get religion mm-hmm. and they come back and they really drive change within their company and their industry. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite one? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I mean, since we're on the topic, I'll, I'll use Lee. Scott. Mm-hmm. So um, 
you know, Lee's interest was very defensive to start. He was under a lot of siege with the, the labor issues that were on the paper every every day. And, um, you know, he really wanted to know how – I don't know what I don't know about our environmental impact. I want to know. I want to know where we can shore it up and protect ourselves. So a reasonable response to the situation that he was in seven years ago. Uh, very quickly, the conversation was, no, no, no. That's fine, but don't focus on defense. Focus instead on offense. Focus on on this sustainability properly understood is all about driving out waste. It's all about doing the right thing. It's all about lowering costs, true costs. Fully loaded costs. Fully loaded costs and the costs that you're you're giving to your customers. It's about serving your customer because, you know, all these, these nice products that we get to you know, enjoy here in San Francisco the locally grown food and, and, and all of this is not available to the vast majority of Americans, much less the vast majority of people all over the world. And so in a sense, it's like how do you democratize good stuff? And, and that was our kind of our thing. And, oh, by the way, it's the greatest untapped source of competitive advantage in our time, perhaps the only enduring one. Because companies are the only companies that are going to make it through this century are going to be highly resilient and committed to this to the absolute core, to knowing what their impacts are, good and bad, and beginning to innovate and work with their suppliers and their partners and all sorts of people to, to manage it. So, big conversation. Guy running a huge company, you know, very busy, uh, uh, and we say, so Lee, you know, we'd like to take a, a little trip. It was about a year into this. And, you know, he's he's going along. It's kind of 15 minutes a week he's putting into this, and he's making sure that things are he's going. He's doing it because Rob Ralton said Probably he had to. Probably a little yeah. bit because Rob's, you know, on him. And uh, and uh, I think he's intrigued. But we uh, we took a trip to Mount Washington. First, we went on the way to Mount Washington. is the highest, uh, I think, mountain in New Hampshire, I believe it is. And it's considered <laughs> to be the worst weather in – is it New Hampshire? It is in New Hampshire, the worst weather. They, they have a plaque up there. That says "Worst weather in the world," and up on the top of this, this on the top of the mountain, there is a there is a, 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 a hut, and in this hut live these kind of twenty-something PhD students who monitor all sorts of weather: CO2, you know, uh, uh, sulfur dioxide, everything like that. And we went up there and basically spent a day and a night. Spent the night in a bunkhouse. With, with uh, you know, all these kind of young scientists learning about what they do, why they do it, how it works, and what they're noticing. What are the trends? It's been up there for 60 years. And on the way back from that, that's when we uh, said, you know, I think I want to talk about this with, with the associates. With, with, and then Understanding he, he climate change, it kind of drove it home for him? Yeah. And, and, and in a sense... Being taken out of his day-to-day environment and being with a bunch of people that he would never normally spend any time with and beginning to, you know, internalize all, you know, emotionally, if you will. And, and, and again, uh, Conservation International is one of the brilliant organizations of doing this with people all the time. Peter's constantly going around the world showing people these things viscerally, experiencing What's going on on the ground? And there's nothing like that to, to get people to wake up. Yeah. Jim Ellison is co-founder and C- founder and CEO of Blue Sky Consultants. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to bring out the uh, microphone and put it right where it used to be sitting. And uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, if you'd like to have, invite a question or a comment right there, and I'll ask one more question while you can get over there and... and uh, um, form, form the line. One of the most important jobs of a CEO is to allocate capital, where to build new factories or, or around the world. Are they are CEOs taking into account yet resilience, uh, thinking about, well, in 10 years there will be sea level rise in this area or this country has a good adaptation plan, uh, but this country doesn't. Is that even on their radar yet or is that is that too far away for that, that capital investment cycle uh, to be thinking on their on their mindset yet. Um, definitely, companies that are have long, you know, big long power plans. Yeah. Yes. True. I mean, you think no question. It's. I know many industries that are looking at it. Fifteen years ago, 
McDonald's became concerned about climate change because they were concerned about where they were going to be able to get the wheat for their buns. That's how basic it is. They began worrying about where is their fish going to come for their fish sandwiches. Coca-Cola constantly worrying about where do they get fresh water. I mean, they got a couple of issues. Where's our fresh water coming from? You know, but what's what's really fascinating about this conversation that we're having about about uh, kind of public understanding why are corporations interested in this what kind of investment is that um, we've just gone through this we're in the middle of this phenomenal debt crisis we're in the you know triggered by the subprime mortgage the same thing I mean just if you want to understand how real this is just realize that we don't know where our food comes from we don't know where our water comes from we don't know the dependency we have on forests for precipitation or agricultural production. In other words, we are living in a subprime mess from an ecological perspective that is really remarkable. We have, there are, we, we cannot define what we really have right now in terms of ecological health. All we know or all the indicators are it's really bad. And so, you know, that's why we've got to kind of really put an effort into understanding what are the services? Where do they come from? How do they get here? And how do we protect them? Peter Seligman is uh, CEO of Conservation International. Jim well, Bell. I was just going to say, and, and, and for businesses, as soon as we can start to quantify and put a dollar amount, a true cost amount, that, that there's you know, uh, recognized by organizations like Conservation International and universities, which is it's all underway. That will make it a lot easier for a CFO to actually do the calculations and, uh, that need to be done in order to do the right things. And it will be. It will be the companies that actually figure out how to make money and price things in such a way today while reducing the lowest cost. So the, the sustainable economy is only going to come under one condition. When the lowest price good, like the lowest price T-shirt at Walmart, is lowest price precisely because it does the least harm. When all those costs are internalized. Let's go to our uh, audience question here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Thank you. Hi, Paul Herman from Hip Investor, Jib and Peter. Thanks for your leadership in helping to transform corporations. I'd be interested to hear any experience you might have had with financial institutions. Uh, so, for example, Goldman Sachs does have a sustainability portfolio, yet clients nor staff of Goldman Sachs seem to know that. Uh, the former uh, wealth management lead at Goldman Sachs, David Blood, went to work with Al Gore uh, to found Generation Investment Management. So what are either the opportunities that financial institutions are pursuing, uh, including pricing, carbon, water, uh, and other elements, or what are the challenges in getting them to shift? Well, that's something that both of us are really interested in. It's something that, is, that we are working really closely together on. Um, I think that, that uh, the experience that we've had to date is that the interest comes when there is a possibility of a market. So there was interest in a carbon market. Um, interest has declined because of the lack of leadership in, by the United States. And so there was a great interest, got a great opportunity, and all the environmental community was excited about it. We all thought in terms of billions and billions of dollars being invested or hundreds of billions eventually, um, the banks were interested because there was a market. That really says what we've learned so far about working with the financial industry, which is um, they make money whatever works. That's kind of they make they lend money. I mean that's their business, and so so we haven't really found that kind of same kind of hook like your supply chain is is endangered. Um, but there are some leaders in the industry that actually are thinking about this in a really constructive and positive way. And uh, so we're seeing individuals in institutions that actually have that same kind of heart-mind connection, thinking this is really important. We actually can use the power of our financial institution to uh, look at the creditworthiness of a nation. A nation whose natural assets are increasing is lower credit risk. Let's give them a better rate. And so those conversations are taking place, uh, and we're you know, very much involved in, in finding those people, finding those institutions, and being able to demonstrate 
that this actually uh, is uh, is kind of a long-term play that makes sense. If you're just joining us, Peter Seligman is CEO of Conservation International. Let's have another audience question. Hi, Holly Kaufman. So good that you're both here and enthusiastic about, optimistic about the future. I was hoping that you could elaborate a bit or make the link more between the valuation of ecosystem services that you're talking about, and you've given examples from municipalities and countries primarily, and the sustainability initiatives you're working on within companies that are focusing a lot on waste and energy reduction. Could you give some examples of companies and how they might be changing their internal economics to account for provision of ecosystem services, such as what Dow is doing, who produces chemicals including pesticides, but they are changing their internal economics to do more full-cost accounting. Could you elaborate on that link? Jim Ellison? Well, um, so first of all, what what Dow is doing um, is looking at their physical footprint of a number of their locations, and and they're trying to make the calculation because externalities come in two kind of two sorts, right? There's what we typically think of as negative externalities, which is the bad ones, the ones that we push costs on to other people. But then there's those things that we do that actually benefit other people that we don't get credit for as well. So so the idea is simply to figure out what is our, quote-unquote, our impact and how might we quantify it. So that's the project that they're, they're um, undertaking. What's interesting is there's a number of efforts, as I said earlier, underway. And if you could begin to actually understand the costs and connect them to these indexes that are starting to be built kind of completely in in separate universes, um, you start to now see how you could have a, a, a rating system with, with the ability, our ability to aggregate technology in, a, in, a, in the way that we can today that will actually spit out and allow you to understand in a, both a financial standpoint and a physical standpoint what, what's going on. Because today, I mean, to be fair to a lot of these companies, they, they just don't know. You know, they really just don't know. They, they kind of count on their supplier, the person they talk to day to day, and they're counting on whoever they talk to day to day. Partly because they may not want to know. They, fair enough. But that's, that, that day is ending, I, I, I say, because, again, we now have the ability to instantly transmit information all over the world, and, uh, and that's not going away. Somebody there's another. Dis- I mean, it's interesting you asked this particular question. I came back from from Hong Kong yesterday, uh, last night, and we had this Asia-Pacific Business and Sustainability Council meeting there. And a company that is there, it's Cathay Cathay Pacific, right, out of Hong Kong. Well, Cathay Pacific, if you look at the organogram of where Cathay Pacific fits in the Swire company, S-W-I-R-E, it's a massive holding company with dozens and dozens of companies. One little box is Cathay Pacific. Which is an airline, we should Which say. Which is an airline, a big carbon emitter. Now, they're working hard to reduce their footprint. They're looking at the, you know, the weight of the plane. They're looking at the fuel load. Looking at a lot of stuff there. But they can't get away from the fact they are a big CO2 emitter. So what does Swire do? They have set up an internal trading program between companies that are in their conglomerate. And I've never heard of any other company doing it. Mm. And so this is, this is, you know, at this council meeting, it's basically, who's come up with ideas? This is their idea. They're doing offsets and swaps within the corporation to encourage neutrality and figure out ways to compensate different businesses. So there's some interesting things happening. And, and I was really excited by, by this. They're also, by the way, Coca-Cola's largest bottling company in Asia, all China and India, and 11 states in the United States, right? So they got these bottles, these plastic bottles. And they're trying to figure out how do we get the plastic out of plastic and make it into a plant product. So they're down to about 35% is, 60% is plastic now, 40% is this plant byproduct. But it still has a volume issue. So what they've been figuring out is that they've changed the structure so that you can twist the bottle so it goes from being about that wide 
to that wide in order to re- reduce volume. I mean, it just in other words, companies come up with a lot of interesting ideas, but I love that internal trading idea the most. First I've heard that. Uh, Peter Selgman is with Conservation International. Let's have another audience question at the Commonwealth Club. Joey Cristiano, Presidio Graduate School, and thank you both for coming. This has been a great discussion. My question is, when you're doing sustainability work with Walmart, how do you address, address the social side? Like, how do you address the employees? Well, um, the, well, typically what the work that I have done is not about the labor. We, we, we tried to take that on. Initially, we said, look, if you want to really look at sustainability, you have to look at the social side and the environmental side. That said, um, they would uh, argue, and they do vehemently, that if you put them up against their competitors, they always come out better. That's not, uh, but again, it really hasn't been you know, where we've spent our time. The, 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 the point, I think, is you know, companies like Walmart and these large corporations are not going away anytime soon. And I think, you know, when I first started, I, I live up in Healdsburg, you know. I grew up here in San Francisco. So you've gone away. Huh? So you've gone away and said you've yeah. gone <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, so, so what happened when we first started working with Walmart, I had a number of my friends and peers and people I respect a lot say, have you lost your mind? Sell out. Yeah. <laughs> like, have you absolutely lost your mind? And, and, and my point was, is what, you know, if you had the opportunity to, to walk in and talk to George Bush, or you had the opportunity to walk in and have a conversation with Hitler, would you do it? Not to say that Walmart is like either of them, but the point is, if you had a chance to have a significant influence, just because you didn't like them or because you thought that they were doing it, would you do it? And and I, I say, absolutely. And the worst that happens is they they don't listen to you. And we should also say that Adam Werbach, uh, who's been here several times, did take on some of the employee piece. That was regarding Mm -hmm. their personal sustainability plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another person who was called a sellout when he went to consult uh, with Walmart. And they've addressed sort of the personal sustainability, which helps reduce Walmart's health care costs if their employees are fitter and eat better, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that still doesn't get to, I think, some of the women's issues and, and labor issues and immigrants issues, which uh, Walmart is still known for, and there's some concern that... But the, what's changed? But let me, I, I, mean, I actually think that what's, one of the, the experiences that has happened with Walmart is that they had a really positive experience dealing with the community that they never dealt with, and that was the NGO community. It was polarized. They realized, and they have they historically they had the walls up, they had the barriers up, and you could not get in. They opened up. This process that we went through was their first engagement with the NGO community, where they really engaged. The end result was really positive. So they also have been engaging now with NGOs, looking at other issues like addressing labor. How do you address some of these issues? So you're beginning to to see at least a conversation is taking place. And I think that that's really important. We need to make certain these conversations take place because without the conversation, we're not going to solve these problems. Which gets back to the uh, the poachers and the uh, the person in Africa mm-hmm. talking to your enemies. Um, some things we do here occasionally at Climate One. Yes, next question. That's a nice segue to my question. My name is Crystal Simons. I'm an environmental planner, graduate student at UC Berkeley. And earlier in the program, you, or the conversation, you discussed that regional solutions really seem to have more teeth as well as sort of personal interest issues. How do we connect those issues of regionality and individuality with these large corporations that are sort of high profile and global in scale? You know, we're talking about Walmart and Coca-Cola and the Dow and things like that. But really, are there any anecdotal stories that sort of inspire the individual or inspire local communities themselves to partake in this this issue of ecosystem services at not the business level so much. Yeah. Uh, well, one, one example, uh, to, to, to go back uh, to a Walmart example, we, we they obviously source a lot of stuff in China. China has a lot of issues. One issue in particular, there's a famous sacred lake that is uh, uh, surrounded by small farms with between one and three acres 
all families and they're all in co-ops, et cetera. And over the years, the practices have increasingly increased the usage of you know fossil fuel inputs, insecticides, pesticides, fertilizers, et cetera. It all runs off into the lake. The lake becomes eutrophied. Is that the word? Yeah. And uh, killing all the fish, and it just wasn't working. So, so Walmart in this case said, look, if you do it the right way, consistent with you know what your scientists are telling you. You clean up, you do it in such a way that you, you, uh, you know, clean the lake the way that you want. We'll buy all your vegetables. And it's, you know, it's a million farmer program that they're engaged. They have hundreds of thousands that they're involved in. So, so, and they're, and they're actively involved in small family, in this case, small family farm, they call it direct farm programs all over the world today. And they got another big one going in, uh, in, uh, Central America and, uh, Costa Rica. Can I just add one thing? This is ecosystem services don't just relate to companies. I mean, we've been talking about companies Mm -hmm. and pricing, but ecosystem services and the benefits are actually for people. I mean, like that's what we're all talking about. Um, We have a program called Conservation Stewards Program, and the Conservation Stewards Program, which works all over the world, from Tibet to Ecuador, wherever it might be, all over the world, basically says, what in your community, what do you get from nature, and how do you measure that, and then what's the deal? I mean, do you need teachers? Do you need water buffalo? Do you need more rice paddies? You know, how do you work together? And so this program, it's called Conservation Stewards, is just focused on how do you activate communities so that they will be the beneficiaries through education, medicine, or livelihood in exchange for the protection of ecosystems that provide service to them and to their neighbors. We have a couple minutes left. Let's get really quickly. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Mann with Guayaquil Sustainable Rainforest Products. Thank you, both. Enlightening conversation. Uh, we certainly don't want to rely on governments, and certainly in, in the U.S. we've got kind of this quagmire. Um, but I'm interested if either of you have experience or think there's a likelihood that other major governments, specifically China, might, based on kind of their you know central planning, get involved in this and be able to move things quicker in China, which then might spur America to action as well. So I just came back from China, um, and my impression is that China is actually, uh, they're not in a, they are, they are in a place where they have created a, there is a massive appetite for economic advancement, and so that's kind of the engine. And at the same time, last year there were 52,000 environmental events that caused damage. That's the engine too. They're in this place where they understand that Getting rich slowly maybe makes more sense. And so they have just published a commitment to reduce the growth rate in order to make the economy grow green. And that's a, a very big change. Uh, and, and so I actually am very encouraged by the conversation and the awareness that's taking place in the government of China recognizing that they need to address the sustainability issue really smartly or else they're going to have collapse. And, and that's, a, that's a real uh, – that's with conversations with leadership all over, over the country. So I think that they're probably in a position and now have decided they want to become a leader in that internationally. So uh, they're going with us to Africa to talk about, okay – Let's change the conversation about sourcing from Africa to one that could be a sustainable supply. Now, we'll see how deep that commitment is, but the conversation is actually taking place. Peter Seligman is uh, CEO of Conservation International. Let's have our last audience question here. Thank you. My name is Claire Bonham-Carter. I'm the Director of Sustainable Development with AECOM. Now, a critical part of this conversation is the dollar value that is being assigned to the ecosystem services. My question is, do you think there is sufficiently robust peer-reviewed information out there with these dollar values that will, that private developers will believe in sufficiently to change their behavior? And if there are such sources out there, will you be willing to share them with us? <laughs> we have one more question, so let's try to do this quickly. We'll get last one in. Who's going to share? It's not there. No. Peter Sullivan? Yeah. Not there. Needed. I mean, that's you know, the peer-reviewed information data is required. There are some demonstrations. There are some indicators, of, uh, but it's, it, we're a long way off. Come nope. back in a couple of years and we'll have it? 
Um, let's have one last question. Extra innings. Okay. Some, thank you for taking this last question. Somewhat uh, to an earlier point Peter was making about ecosystem services um, and the, the areas that they play in, do you have any examples of cities or municipalities being able to take, make use of ecosystem services to, to bring in additional revenue, such as I, I've worked with cities um, trying to make use of their urban forests? Are there other examples as well? Thank you. Uh, uh, cities that are not just the United States. Are we limited to Is this answer limited to the United States? Um, there are some cities in Brazil that have been able to use ecosystem services because within their municipalities they own water supplies and they're actually shipping the water to, to other communities and other areas. The other ecosystem service that generates wealth to cities all over the world is ecotourism. It's the, it's the, uh, it's protection of a city, greening of a city, uh, Maintenance of parks brings tourism in, and so that is really an under uh, a, a uh, that's a that's a very important service that ecosystems provide, and many cities benefit from that. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Peter Selgman, CEO of Conservation International, Jib Ellison, CEO of Blue Sky Consultants. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks to our listeners on the radio, and thanks to our audience here in San Francisco. Thank you all for coming.